And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be. Around this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of the show that never gets predictable, The Other Side of Midnight. We are living in a world of, well, I would have said controlled chaos, but, you know, given what's going on in the Suez Canal tonight, I'm wondering how much of it is controlled. We're going to get to that story. I mean, that's, at several different levels, that's a fascinating story. So, but let me start with um, the top of the news and let me tell all our new listeners, because we have this constant turnover. People are joining People are leaving. One of my friends in radio, Fred Lundgren, used to say it's like um, trying to keep frogs in a wheelbarrow. And um, eh, kind of a weird metaphor. Anyway, um, what you want to do if you're new to the show is you want to go to a website, go to a, a computer, your phone, click on our URL, which is theothersideofmidnight.com. Theothersideofmidnight.com. And you click on that. That will take you to our homepage. And on the homepage, you will see, if you scroll down a little bit, a um, listing for tonight, Saturday. Saturday evening here in the Land of Enchantment, March 27th. That was my mother's birthday. I've been thinking about that all day, 27th. If she could see what we're doing now. Anyway, it's uh, the tonight's title is Penetrating Percy's Hidden Mission with Ingenuity. And you know I love puns, so you know we thought we'd do something like that. Anyway, click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And we have a lot of guests tonight. We have a whole series of people from our Enterprise Mission Imaging team. We have some outside guests that are going to be uh, regaling you with some extraordinary new information. An actual, I mean, imagine science doing experiments and reporting results. I mean, we've got the results of an experiment having to do with some of the things we talked about last uh, Saturday evening, and so we're going to bring that to you. Anyway, before you do, we do that, you do that, um, under that banner on the guest page, you see it says Fast Links to Items with my name, Andrew, Andrew Curry, Timothy Saunders. Tim may or may not be joining us. Ron Gerbron, Ruggiero, and uh, Leslie, we will um, talk about Leslie momentarily. Anyway, if you click on my links, Richard there, that will take you right to the Radio with Pictures section where we have news items and images and links and videos and all that. And item number one, this is really intriguing. Now, everyone knows, or they should know if they've done any homework on this show, that my model for the whole COVID-19 global disaster is that we are at war. Someone sent us this with multi-leveled, very negative uh, intentions. And the counter to all that is the race around the world to develop vaccines, to inoculate huge numbers of people that have never on this scale been attempted before. And of course, there's controversy at every single level in this process. As part of our research, as part of our scientific inquiry, we have discovered in this extraordinary death toll from not just the United States, but from around the world attributed to COVID-19. And again, it doesn't matter whether this is real or not. This is what's so stunning. The European CDC, 
and I avoided specifically under the Trump administration going to our Center for Disease Control because we know there's documented or there was documented political interference. So I went to the Europeans who were collecting globally the same data and I honed in on the death toll per day. And the really cool thing about the European CDC website was they made it interactive so you could literally click on any day and see the total number in real time of deaths on that day. And then you move to the next day and you could see the number change. What I discovered and apparently was backed up by a virologist in Israel and two a physicist at the University of Illinois and another virologist who published a paper and I've been trying to get them on the air and we're we're gonna we're gonna succeed. You know, the, the, some things take a little longer. Anyway, what they noticed and I noticed is that in this global death count coming from over a hundred and ninety some nations with different political systems, different reporting criteria, different standards for what qualified as a COVID death. There's a lot of controversy here about did our CDC inflate the numbers? I mean, you know all this. What I found and what these other researchers found was this stunning, repetitive, seven-day ruthless cycle in the number of deaths. Every seven days, the death count would either accelerate enormously or, depending upon how you're counting, it would plummet. If you started at a peak, seven days later it would be a valley. If you started at a valley, seven days later it would be a peak. And this has gone on for over a year. And people, of course, say, well, Hoagland, they're just faking the statistics, so you know, you're know you just seeing what you want to see. No, because... If you were, if you're doing this as a global hoax, which again is one of the theories out there, the idea would be to make it as boring and as uninteresting as possible, meaning you would have a randomized curve. Computers can easily do that. Um, but in this case, that number all over the world, you can break it down by individual, you know, continents. You can break it down by groupings of nations. You can look at individual nations. But the sum total all over the world, every seven days, the cycle either of peak deaths or minimal deaths repeats over and over and over and over again. And it's done that now for over a year. And it's still doing it, although finding the original source data, the the um, uh, European CDC for some reason, and I think it's because of this, stopped providing the uh, interactive website with daily counts. They now give a seven-day average. Gosh, I wonder why they picked seven days. Because, of course, that obliterates this extraordinary, totally mind-boggling pattern. I mean, how do two patients on opposite sides of the planet, one in day, one in night, decide to die on the same day. People who have never met, don't know each other, never will, unless they meet somewhere up and beyond. The fact is something outside of the terrestrial excuses or explanations like it was because of the seven-day week and all that, or the hospital reporting 
you know, protocols. No, all that w was eliminated by my research and the Israeli and, and Illinois researchers backed that up. They found there was no coral. They tried reaching for one, thinking that there had to be something kind of mundane. And they left at the end of their paper at an open question because they couldn't think of anything that would be uniform around the world, given the difference of reporting methodologies, protocols, medical systems, governments, government politics, government policies, etc., etc., etc. But this pattern, this seven-day pattern, relentlessly repeating over and over and over again, when all the falderall around the virus has kind of subsided, that, I believe, firmly, will remain as the most important discovery of the whole COVID-19 horrible global experience. Why? Because let's assume for a moment that some of the accusations that our CDC has been freely attributing non-COVID deaths to COVID because hospitals basically want the money. That's the, the crassest way people are explaining why, you know, the number of COVID deaths has gone up precipitously over the last year that they're basically taking from column A and putting them in column B. They're misfiling, misaccounting, mis, you know, like happened in, uh, in uh, New York State. If that was the case, you'd expect the, the systematic seven-day cycle to be either attenuated or, in fact, ultimately obliterated because those inputs, those, those made-up numbers would be random unless someone was mindful of this pattern. And who in their right mind producing a hoax would reinforce a pattern that's going to get outside researchers to go and say, what the hell is going on with this? So I'm assuming tonight that if there is a significant admixture of non-COVID deaths, what this incredible seven-day cycle is telling us is that death on planet Earth among humans. We don't know about the animal kingdom, but that's going to be extraordinary research for the future. But at least death among humans, which has never been reported simultaneously all over the planet for every single day until the COVID-19 thing came along. We have no stats. I mean, they're there. You could dig them out, but that would require significant money and Hopefully, there will be significant money to go and pursue this. The point is, my suspicion is that this extraordinary seven-day death cycle applies not just to those who contracted and died from COVID-19, but to all deaths in general. So then you have to ask yourself, why would there be a planet-wide seven-day repeating relentless cycle. And it doesn't matter how many COVID deaths per day are reported, the, the increase and decrease follow this seven-day cycle. I think this is the most profound discovery because it means, when you reduce everything else, some outside forcing function, some unknown attribute of the planetary environment here on Earth is modulating deaths in a seven-day periodicity. 
And if we can interject into that cycle, if we apply treatments or therapeutics or vaccines, whatever interventions you're thinking of, if we apply them in counter-resonance with this cycle, is it possible we could have a major dramatic effect of lowering the death counts from any diseases, any causes, except, of course, you know, car crashes and stuff like that, if we applied this systematically. So this is an area of research that obviously I'm going to be quietly pursuing. I'm going to be talking to these other researchers. I'm going to, you know, do another survey of papers and see if anybody else has picked up on this and done any additional homework. But to me, this is an extraordinary window into what death is itself. And is it inevitable? Can we intervene? Can we do something in a counter cycle that would maybe modulate this with a very significant degree of, you know, this favorite new word of the period, efficacy? Anyway, as part of that backdrop, I was rather intrigued that the former CDC director, um, uh, Dr. Redfield, who was uh, head of the CDC under under the Trump administration. Now, of course, he is no longer there. The Biden administration put in a new gal. And so he says he's kind of free to talk. He came out with an interview with on CNN with Sanjay Gupta a couple of days ago, and he stunned a lot of people, colleagues, news people, Gupta, of course, you know, first and foremost, because Redfield said categorically that is his opinion based on his review of the evidence that COVID-19 is a manufactured virus and it escaped from a lab in Wuhan. Now, the escaping part is separate from the manufactured part. Because remember, our model is it was manufactured upstairs. It's being used by the Nazi breakaways to basically try to do serious damage to our terrestrial civilization, attacking countries that could perhaps oppose them in a scenario where they basically try to take things over. And the first way you do that is you make people very, very weak. Because remember, when you look at the COVID-19 scenarios, as tragic and as horrible as the numbers, over half a million American deaths so far attributed again, by the CDC to COVID-19, it's not the people who die, which I believe should be a primary concern. I know that's going to shock some people. It's the people who live, who live with this disease, and a year after they contracted it, they still have not recovered. And I've seen numbers ranging from 10% to a high of 50% of people getting COVID-19 have what's called long COVID, meaning they have not recovered. And this is being reported all over the world. It's not just here in the U.S. If you're you're trying to debilitate a planet, if you're trying to undercut civilization, resources, monies, um, public health services, uh, medical institutions, doctors who, of course, are at their wit's end and all the frontline medical personnel, because they've been at this now nonstop for over a year, would this not be a way 
leaving no fingerprints. Because remember, the standard mainstream story is that this virus was contracted from a bat through an intermediary animal, and then it became suitable for transmission to humans. Well, Redfield is saying categorically, no, I think this was a disease being studied or created in the lab in Wuhan, and it escaped. And, of course, it's caused tremendous controversy, again, separate from the Wuhan part. Because, again, if China was chosen as the target because they did something to make the folks upstairs unhappy with them and they wanted to teach them a lesson, which, again, is part of our model, the data still fits. Now, remember, I've had Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh on the show couple of times talking about this, and from a completely independent perspective, an independent data source, he also believes that COVID-19 could have originated beyond the earth. And there are all kinds of exotic scenarios over and above the it was deliberately designed, which I do not believe that he subscribes to. He thinks it may have been one of the pathogens floating around in the solar system that opportunistically landed on earth infected humans and thereby history you know began to unfold in the tragic way that it has over the last year we're not obviously going to settle this tonight but i wanted you to be aware that the former head of the cdc under president trump has now come out publicly against a great deal of of shock and and surprise and put his reputation on the line that in fact this was a created virus And eventually, as he said to Gupta, science, if it's honest, will tell us the truth. And of course, the whole thing about being honest is the key part of that. Um, Okay, item number two in my radio with pictures tonight. There is this bizarre story. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's kind of going to detract in terms of time from what I want to do with the rest of the evening. But there is this ship. This 1,300-foot-long cargo-carrying ship with huge numbers of containers on the decks um, that got stuck on Tuesday, a few days ago, in the Suez Canal and is sideways. So it's literally blocking the entire width of the primary channel of the Suez Canal, and they've been trying since Tuesday to free it with little and no success. At the rate of $400 million per hour, let me repeat that, $400 million per hour is the number that I've seen authoritatively quoted. The Egyptian government, which runs the Suez Canal, is losing money as well as the shippers, customers, this global supply chain that we kind of really discovered is, a, is problematic because of the COVID-19 thing with an awful lot of stuff made in China. Speaking of which, it turns out this ship is owned by a shipping magnate in Japan, but its last port of call before it departed for Amsterdam, I'm sorry, Rotterdam uh, in the Netherlands by way of the Suez Canal was a province of China. So my conspiratorial bump said, kind of dig into this. Could there be something more to this than just an accident happening in a sandstorm? 
And there are, of course, really far-out theories that this has to do with pedophilia and the uh, track that you can see on GPS when you click on that link. There is a whole Twitter discussion about the the, uh, agencies that track and put up websites showing where all the ships are all over the world at any given moment. And when you look at the complicated track of this thing kind of running around in the Red Sea before it got in the Congo line to go through the canal, it it produces or it produced a very exotic, shall we say, representation of the male reproductive system. And of course, there are huge leaps of a lot of people that, oh, this has something to do with pedophilia. I think it has something to do with China. And I think it has something to do with China in orbit around Mars tonight. See, that model is equally supportable until we get additional evidence. You know, separating conspiracy theories comes down to, is there corroborating evidence? Well, one of the things I've thought of is, suppose this ship, somewhere amid those thousands of containers, which are literally the size of house trailers, big house trailers, suppose, like has been found coming across the U.S.-Mexican border, there are slaves, there are prisoners who are being shipped from China to Rotterdam, and someone used the used the um, uh, satellite GPS system and moved the ship in a complicated pattern to indicate that there's something weird going on with the ship that they want it investigated. And when no one answered the call, what do they do? Well, did they deliberately run the ship aground in the canal so someone will come and investigate what might be hiding or imprisoned in one or more of those containers on the ship. Again, these are total wild speculations. But the story itself is totally wild, starting with a corroborational fact. According to the shipper, according to the company that uh, owns this, this vessel called the Ever Given, um, it hit the sandbar on the side of the canal because of the, of the sandstorm and the violent winds pushing the huge ship like a sail because they had a failure of onboard engines and rudder control. Except there's another company which oversees the maintenance on the ship, which has now come out in that story, which is linked in item number two, and says, no, the ship did not lose power. The ship did not lose helm control. So was it deliberately steered into the bank to either communicate in a desperate last-ditch effort by some crewman that this ship was carrying imprisoned prisoner human beings who need to be rescued? Or was this some plot by someone somewhere to basically screw up between 12 and 15% of the global um, commercial traffic that goes through the Suez Canal, including a lot of oil, including military um, uh, hardware, ships, destroyers, cruisers. I think the canal could even take uh, aircraft carriers, the modern aircraft carrier that, that we have. Is someone wanting to prevent a U.S. battle fleet from reaching a critical part of the globe at a critical time because they're planning something? In other words, the speculations can go off scale 
The fact is, tonight there is a ship, a 1,300-foot-long ship, stuck crosswise in the Suez Canal, and the world is quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, freaking out about it. Well, item number three. One of the sets of people that should be freaking out are animal lovers, because it turns out that all the ships that are waiting, both at the north end, meaning the Mediterranean Sea, or the south end, the Red Sea, to go through the canal when this, you know, ever-given ship is removed, they have apparently thousands or tens of thousands of livestock on board. Sheep and cattle and who knows what. And because these ships are not provisioned for long sailing times, they those animals are going to be running out of food and water and hygiene, and this could become a major international catastrophe in terms of the number of animals senselessly dying because of a ship stuck in the Suez Canal. This shows us the complicated nature of the global economy, the global systems, and obviously the fact that uh, there needs to be you know, better backups when something like a single point failure like this occurs. Now, we have offered, meaning the United States has offered to come and help uh, remove the ship or move it off the, the edge. Apparently, both ends are now stuck on the side of the canal on the sand, and they're trying everything, tugboats, and, and um, they're not doing some of the simple things that I would recommend. But who knows? They've now contracted, the Egyptian government has contracted with a salvage firm from um, um, the Netherlands, and they're going to come and take a whack at it. The most optimistic estimates are that this will be sitting there for another couple of days. The most realistic and pessimistic are that this could go on literally for weeks or even months. Because one of the proposals to float her free into the canal again would be to offload the containers. Well, if you don't do that in a very careful manner, balancing forces, balancing um, you know, uh, buoyancy, she could capsize. And then, of course, the, it would be a tragedy that they would literally take half a year, uh, like that um, cruise ship off uh, Italy some years ago, to, you know, salvage her or move her, whatever. I mean, this could turn into, from a extraordinary impediment, it could turn into a global catastrophe very, very quickly, unless it's done carefully, and that takes time. And did someone kind of forecast all of this? Does this have a strategic objective? And if it does, how is it connected to what the Chinese are doing at Mars? Now, if you think I'm kind of, you know, kidding about that, item number four. In the coming few weeks, we're going to be flying, NASA's going to be flying, a helicopter on the planet Mars. Little ingenuity, they've Un uncovered her sitting underneath the rover Perseverance and we're going to be seeing them go through step by step by step to lower her to the sands of Mars and then sometime around April 8th is the given time frame now uh, they're going to take their first helicopter flights on Mars with a NASA uh, add-on technical experiment uh, that actually Kind of like the old joke about the bumblebee, you know, engineers say it can't fly. Well, there's a lot of, of weirdness around 
the helicopter flying on Mars in the first place, which we're going to get to when we, you know, get to the program. And uh, I'll tell you what, we are rapidly running out of time. So let me do this. Let me put everybody on hold and tell everybody to kind of sit still because the rest of the show is going to be taking you literally one step beyond. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency, you're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globaloni is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already uh, I think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell, and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday evening, March 27th, my mother's birthday. For 2021, a lot of things going on. Well, we have a lot of guests to get to, so uh, rather than have me kind of go on and on, let me introduce all my guests. Not necessarily in any particular order, and since most of them are known to most of you... Uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time uh, going through their biographies. They are on the other side of midnight. Just scroll down to the bottom. So let me uh, let me kind of do this, and then we will do this. Okay. I have to remember to turn these things off because sometimes I don't. You know, I grew up in an era where where when you uh, you know did radio, you had a whole control room full of Guys sitting around in short sleeve shirts and narrow black ties, or even in suits, the engineers, and they kept you on the air. And anyway, um, we've got Keith Morgan with us, of course, who was uh, inventor of the Morgan curve. Used to be a consultant in the uh, uh, engineering division for Ted Koppel and Nightline. Ron Gerbron, who was our proud, uncredentialed generalist, who you have uh, heard many times on the air, we actually did a one-on-one show with us last Saturday talking about uh, perseverance and really interesting implications. Andrew Curry, who's our resident artist, who does, you know, Hollywood stuff and television stuff and commercials and even has a degree in art therapy. He's with us. Um, I don't know whether, is, is Ruggiero with us? Someone tell me in my, you know, on the air. Just tell me yes or no. I... I know what I have to do. See, I have to do that. Okay, we'll try that again. Is Ruggiero... Good morning. Good. You are here. here. Yeah, hi. Excellent, excellent. Okay, Ruggiero is one of our newest uh, uh, joiners in this rather open and loosely narrated uh, discussion. He is of Italian-English descent. He's from native London, later moved to the South Coast, where he is um, uh, a keen athlete, represented... His locality in sprint running for the 100, 200, and 400 meter run was a youth county swimming champion, went on to race with and coach the university team. And he is currently, uh, I'm trying to remember what he does currently for his day job. I, I, I know it has to do with uh, podiatry. I believe he is a specialist in human movement and musculoskeletal medicine, including gait reeducation and orthopedic prescriptions. Okay. Who am I missing? Oh, I'm missing Leslie. Leslie, who's been on the show many, many times, is an engineer uh, by day and many other things by night. Among those things she is is an author, a student of life, a music lover, a traveler, a Trekkie, Trekkie or Trekker, amateur radio operator, and a hobby and craftsperson. In 2015, she earned her Master of Science in Engineering in Mechanical Engineering Department at the University of Washington 
and in 2016, she ran for as a U.S. representative in Washington's 7th Congressional District, did not win, but brought a huge number of interesting issues to the fore. Welcome, one and all, and we may be joined by Tim Saunders, and we may not. So who wants to um, go first with a kind of a one or two liner about how I kind of open the program? Because then we need to get back to Mars, because there are some extraordinary things happening with Mars. But I wanted to give everybody a chance to talk a little bit about this amazing Suez Canal story, because I'm feeling, I'm leaning in the direction of a strategic reason for this, as opposed to uh, pedophilia or stupidity or a sandstorm or whatever, because again, China's involved, and China is at the heart of our first story, the COVID-19 thing, and of our current story, which is the Mars thing. So two out of three says to me the odds are, since it came from China, somehow China is involved. Anybody want to take a crack at this? <laughs> They're all so silent. Well, I okay, I'll, I'll and say And these this. are all people uh, who have very strong opinions about everything. Oh, yes. Uh, hi, this is Ron. I, uh, I think the point you made about there might be something on the boat that uh, it would be very embarrassing to someone if it was revealed uh, could be a factor. Well, you know, let, 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 hang on, hang on. Let, let me stop you there because I, I feel, just thought of something that I was going to mention, but it kind of slipped my mind. It's not just people trapped in you know cages in those containers that might be what's going on here as one scenario. Right. What if someone has put a small nuclear device in one of those containers, wedged the ship in the canal, and at their time, their time frame, they simply blow it up, obliterating the means for ships to go through the canal to short circuit two weeks of going around the Horn of Africa, would that not put a real uh, cat among the pigeons in terms of global dynamics? And if you're an outsider, let's say the Nazis, the breakaways, and you want to basically either test the system or you know, bend and break parts of the system, would that not be an incredibly elegant, look ma, no hands way of doing it? You may not even need a nuke. You know, if a lot of those containers were packed with just, you know, C4, it would, you know, the canal, remember, is less than 1,300 feet wide. If if those, that ship is carrying explosives, which, of course, you would never detect if they're not nuclear unless you go container by container by container, and you get you can't get to the ones on the bottom. You have to offload them one by one and be careful like jack straws. You don't pick the wrong one and the whole damn thing capsizes. Sorry, Ron, I, I wanted to get that in there because there could no, be that's some okay. very yeah. pernicious aspects. Of the, I do not think of this as a trivial accident. This has the fingerprints to me, of course, that's my conspiratorial side, of something which has a bigger, bigger plot than anything that's been discussed. I think it's a distraction at the very least, because it could be a very long-term one, and that's more valuable than simply blowing a hole in the uh, in the canal, uh, because I, they do check for that sort of thing. I mean, it's not like the stuff in the containers has not gone through some sort of screening. 
and it's there's all sorts of international laws about transporting nuclear materials. So yeah, it's uh, movie plots aside, it's highly unlikely that there's something at that level in there. It doesn't have to be. They've clogged it up. It's going to take weeks. You've got bureaucrats involved. Uh, you're in a it's in a very contentious part of the world, even though they're not fighting at the moment, and most of them. Uh, and what you need is a big team effort. The trouble is it's just so bloody big. Some of those ships are just too large. They didn't used to let them in places like the Suez Canal. The displacement, they were... the displacement of the ship is 200,000 metric tons. Yeah. That's like so it's... moving the, you know, the World Trade Center or, you know, the Empire State Building. Uh, yeah. And it could have very easily taken the long way da- long way home and gone around the end of Africa, which is what most of those but well, I don't know what the last estimate I saw was around two hundred. God knows how many ships are backed up behind it now. Um, you know, you get used to using it. It's like a f- freeway clogs up, and nobody knows where to go. Sometimes they just sit there in the freeway. But most of those ships have deadlines, and they've backed out they're headed off to uh, go around actually the tip of Africa. not no 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 all the ones that are waiting are still waiting the new guys they're going around but the old guys are sitting there praying that this will get clear in a couple of days uh, it's even it, it, it's, it's even increased the price of of shipping oil by tanker you know so the impact mm-hmm. the economic impact on the global energy market is already discernible I just had this feeling that it's strategic not something lesser than than something big. I mean, the, the Suez Canal is a vital uh, pathway for both civilian and military ships, like aircraft carriers. If someone's going to pull something weird, if you cut off half the planet from the other half of the planet and make them go around the horn, you basically buy yourself two weeks. And Richard, going, I don't want to give anyone Leslie, any ideas. This is, this but, is Leslie. Yes. This no, is no, no. Leslie. Believe me. Believe me. Everybody's <laughs> thought of all the weird ideas. Well, going down your road of, of a nuke or something, you know, you don't even need to go that far. Like I said, I don't want to give anyone ideas, but all you need is one container, lower central part of the ship, blow that one and break the keel. Now you've got a, a massive mess mm-hmm. creating a barrier. Yep. Yep. Long term. True. And that's exactly why they're not going out of their way to simply drag it back in line, which is, you know, the first replay flex anybody would have looking at the pictures. The uh, I don't even know what the strength of that hull is, but I guarantee you that it's a lot uh, less sturdy when it's not full of oil and whatever else. Mm. You know, that I mean, they're not to the level of the old... Uh, Saturn V type rockets with the really thin aluminum or stainless steel shell that needed to be full, uh, fully charged, or it wouldn't. Uh, they would collapse from their own weight. You know, it's not that bad, but just because of the scale of it, uh, you can't tug on one end of it without leverage working against you. You know, the, the pro- prospect of breaching or rippling the hull is just enormous. You know, it's very fortuitous and, we have Leslie with us tonight because you're a mechanical engineer. If you were given the task to get this thing refloated in the canal, what would you do? First thing I would look at, I would construct bollards on the shores. Describe what a bollard is, please. Okay, it's a very heavy post that you can 
tie to or use as a barrier. Like you've seen them around town. You'll see a transformer, a pole or something like this, and there's a steel pole filled with concrete. So when you're parking your car, you don't bang into whatever the item is. That's mm-hmm. a bollard. Oh, okay. okay. You, you can also use oh. them in maritime for tying lines to. So I would construct the bollards so that I could pull the ends toward the center. But um, as Ron pointed out, you, you don't want to be bending the ship too much. So in addition to that, I would look at pumping water down beneath the ends to sluice out the silt, hmm. relieve that pressure. I wonder why that's not being chosen as a method. They're using tugboats. And they're talking about getting bigger tugboats. That just seems so inefficient. You're not pushing against a hard surface. Exactly. Exactly. See, what I was thinking is if you you put your bollards, I was thinking of anchoring something on the other shore. It's only, you know, a little over a thousand feet wide. And then you run cables like like a net of, of, of lines and you pull her, winch her, inch by inch with strain gauges to measure the flexing and all that so that everything is balanced and you've got a place to you know it's the old Archimedes thing give me a place to stand and I can move the earth well trying to do this with tugboats as opposed to winching her from bollards on the other shore just seems to me kind of silly yet no one's thinking of the obvious solution why not What did Star Trek do when they had to get rid of that uh, garbage scowl that was leaking radiation in the next generation? Didn't they attach these rockets or con- uh, remote-controlled rockets to the hull and then fire the rockets up and kind of maneuver it in the direction they needed to maneuver it? Uh, wouldn't that be a way of being able to push this in the front and the back simultaneously in opposite directions are you talking something like 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 uh, jato thrusters jato rockets yeah something like that Yeah, the problem is you have unmodeled forces and i think she would snap her keel remember these mm-hmm. things are basically balloons right leslie yeah, that that's an interesting way to put it but yes they, yeah they're not meant to be held up on just on the ends no no Anyway, um, so, I didn't. Richard, yeah, before you before Andrew, you go on, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I want to go down Weirdo Road here. Um, <laughs> See, in terms of loves Weirdo Road. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, your idea of and it's been thrown around there of, of some sort of dirty bomb is very interesting because uh, this ship, which by the way is called well, it's painted Evergreen and um, well, that's the that company. Ha- that's the company. The name yeah. of the ship is Ever Given. Yeah, that that's true. But, but see, Evergreen name. used to be, back in the old days, that used to be the CIA cover corporation for flying illicit stuff in and out of yeah. Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Yeah, and apparently it's also, allegedly, uh, this is what we've read, that it's um, Hillary Clinton's um, secret service group that covers her. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really weird. But here, here's a really weird one is um, – oh. The, the ship was heading towards Rotterdam, and Rotterdam is the sister city since 1985 of Baltimore. Hmm. And the 2002 film, The Sum of All Fears, which was... Oh, yes, of- yes, yes. What's his name? Very good actor. Um, yeah. James... Oh, yeah. What's his name? I've played oh, come on. so many Oscars. It was Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, Freeman. yes, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and it was another one of these Jack Ryan 
scenarios, you know, um, with that. Yeah, yeah, Jack Ryan, the CIA analyst, and there was a dirty nuclear bomb in a football stadium in Baltimore. So there's these weird <laughs> synchronicities or whatever. See, that I seem think to of these there. as hyperdimensional resonance. Now, I actually, when 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 Kinti and I talked about this this afternoon, because she sent me the map, mm. and I took a look at the map, and of course I looked at all the Twitter stuff and all the, you know, kind of you know weak porno and oh, it's about pedophilia and all that. And I said, we, we, we need a source. So I went and found the source. And if you look at the actual animation of the GPS coordinates, which track all these ships simultaneously, it's obvious to me that the weird geometry that kind of looks like, you know, human male genitalia is because if you watch the animation, this ship was avoiding the other ships in the Red Sea. It was doing this weird thing so that only one ship, which looked like a Coast Guard cutter, came and kind of paced it for a while and then left at high speed, um, like checking it out. But it looked to me like it was avoiding coming within hailing distance or whatever of other traffic. And it had to do this complicated maneuver to keep, because there's a whole bunch of ships, you know, waiting to get in the conga line to go through the canal. It was avoiding contact close proximity to any of the other ships which told me it was in a holding pattern and they didn't want anyone boarding them to see what they might be carrying yeah and that's the whole point of this is that it's you know it's clogged up the drain and the eyes of the world are now looking so it's one of these weird intervention moments that could literally who knows, like you say, Richard, turn the tide on something. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe it's just a technical problem and a lot of mishaps. But it sure is interesting. And you know what? I think we can expect more of this kind of thing as we move forward and even more extraordinary moments that we're going to go, did that really just happen? Hmm. That's a prediction. That's a prediction. Okay, well, that's a very good segue because the next item I wanted to talk to in my section of Radio with Pictures in the last couple, three days, remember, we're all looking forward on June 1st to the publication of the Senate Intelligence Committee requested report on unidentified aerial phenomenon, UFOs, the Nimitz stuff, the Roosevelt stuff, all of that weird stuff that the Pentagon has kind of admitted to with, you know, F-18 gun cameras and all that. Well, there's supposed to be a report due out on or about June 1st. And so earlier this week, the formal director of, of, of uh, national intelligence, uh, Radcliffe, who was the director under Trump, he suddenly, on a Fox interview with uh, the, the business gal, uh, uh, Mar- Marcy Bartolomo, I think is her, is her name, he talks about this report as being um, difficult to explain. And if you click on that item, it's number three, um, it's, it's really rather dramatic. It says, a former top national intelligence official hinted that an upcoming government report on UFOs will include information that cannot easily be explained. There are instances, quoting here, where we don't have good explanations for some of the things that we've seen. And when that information becomes declassified, I'll be able to talk a little bit more about it said former Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe talking with Fox News' Maria Bartiromo 
on Friday. Well, well, well. Now, if you go back to um, Radio with Pictures and you click on item number four, and my screen is not refreshing. Okay, let me do this. Come on. Oh, darn, darn, darn. Did that again. It keeps slipping into this error mode. Why does it keep doing that? Okay. Sorry, folks. It's live radio. Anything can happen. Um, I'm trying to get back into my own page. Uh, come on, guys. Come on, come on, come on. Slowly, slowly. He crept up the stairs and moved toward the end of the whatever. All right. Come on. This is taking too long. Anyway, there's a follow-up report. There's actually two of them. One was an interview with Senator Marco Rubio from um, from Florida, who apparently, at his insistence, this UAP report was going to be submitted in a National Defense and Authorization Act signed into law last year uh, by this June 1st. Well, Rubio said apparently uh, either a, a day ago or a few hours ago that um, it may not be made public on time. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would anybody hold up this report? That's very, very curious. And again, the timing uh, with what's going on in the rest of the world. Yeah, military and spy agencies accused of stiff-arming investigators on UFO sightings. This is a uh, an article which comes from, let me quote it here, from Politico. And it was published... Uh, 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 yesterday, uh, no, t two days ago. The truth may be out there, but don't expect the feds to share what they know anytime soon. Some military and spy agencies are blocking or simply ignoring the effort to catalog what they have now been calling unidentified aerial phenomenon, according to multiple current and former government officials. Um, and as a result, the Biden administration will likely delay a much-anticipated public report to the Congress. Well, isn't that special? Anyway, um, and then, as I said, there was this uh, Rubio report this afternoon that uh, things may uh, be much more complicated and they may have to delay it even further than that other story. And isn't it, isn't it interesting in terms of the timing? Because everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen with UFOs. And, of course... As you may or may not remember, the Chinese, who tonight are in orbit around Mars with an incredibly powerful orbiter, a lander, and a rover of their own, they have said they're going to land on Mars sometime toward the end of May, which would be coincident with the release through the Senate Intelligence Committee of this report on UFOs. And if that's being delayed, why is it being delayed are we having back-channel discussions with the Chinese over what is on Mars, which, of course, is going to be the focus of our conversation for the rest of the evening? Um, anyway, that kind of sets the scene for what I want to talk about for the rest of the night, which is what the heck is on Mars itself. So what you want to do is you want to go back to the other side of midnight and click on My Items, and then item number seven, and we're going to run out of time here in another couple of minutes. Item number seven, as you as you know, last week, Ron and I were discussing that on the Perseverance landing, there were two cameras taking very high-speed video of the landing, looking down. 
One was a black and white camera that was used to actually steer the rover to the safe landing site. The other was a color camera, kind of like a GoPro, which was designed to show uh, the ground coming up and various features getting clearer. And finally, you know, where they ultimately landed for the contact shots taken by the surface cameras once the rover was kind of activated. Item number seven is an animation that I had Ron put together from the very top of the atmosphere on the parachute down to, uh, you know, a couple, three frames down, not to the surface, but close enough so you can see a very important phenomenon. At the end of the animation, which is, I think, six frames, it's GIF frames repeating over and over again, you'll see this bizarre, mysterious sun glint on the surface of the Jezero crater landing site, something I've never seen on any uh, Mars spacecraft before. It appears to be unique to this crater. And when we went looking, we found that three frames that begin the sequence that were downloaded by the rover um, show this remarkable geometric structure, which is basically sticking up above the atmosphere. And so when you put together the animation, as Ron did, what do you see? Well, you see some very, very mysterious three-dimensionality of a latticework that has no business being on the surface of the planet Mars. So why is it there? Well, we may find out by the end of the evening. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We will be back with our imaging team and guests in a couple, three minutes. So don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank mm-hmm. you.